have I got a story for you. Janice Hanwell is running for the Cape and Lopen School Board's at-large seat, which is a five-year term. The election is May 11th. Polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. Residents of the Cape and Lopen School District that are over 18 are Delaware residents. I guess if you're a resident of the Cape and Lopen School District, you would probably be a Delaware resident as well, can vote at Cape and Lopen High School in Lewis, Mariner Middle School in Milton, and Rehoboth Elementary in Rehoboth with identification. Before we get to know Janice, let's get to know today's sponsor, Andre Psyche. Dear loyal listeners, Andre Psyche is unfortunately dead. That's his website.com. But Andre Psyche, the man on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter sometimes, is alive and thriving. Andre has adopted a minimalistic lifestyle as far as materialistic things like websites, cars, his hair. However, his creative libido is still fully stimulated and viewable on most social media platforms. Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up. It's Andre, A-N-D-R-E-Y, Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you're scrolling through social media, looking to friend or follow someone outside of your social circle. Speaking of friending and following, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's getting, the number two, no, the letter U, Pod. Feeling generous with your time? Do you have five seconds to spare? Take a moment right now and push the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you pushed play on. And if you're on Apple, especially if you're on Apple, please rate and review the Getting to Know You pod. Now we know what you're thinking. How else can you support this upstart podcast? Thanks for thinking of that. You can go to our patreon.com and search getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod, all one word, to become a subscriber. And finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. So if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world, not just on the eastern side of Sussex County. We are downloaded in over 46 states in the good old U.S. and in over 45 different countries. Shout out to Canada and the UK, our top two international download sites. So again, if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know Janice Hanwell. And Janice is currently on Cape Henlopen School District School Board and is seeking re-election on May 11th. Polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. 
Eligible voters must live within the Cape School District, be 18 or older, and have proof of identity and address. Looking to vote? Go to Cape and Lopen High School in Lewis, Mariner Middle School in Milton, or Rehoboth Elementary in, you got it, Rehoboth. Currently at Lewis Beach enjoying some quiet. Dr. Hanwell, thank you so much yeah. for coming on the pod and taking time. I so appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me. I and I said it a little bit early on, and I, I say it with a laugh, but I am nervous. I was reading your bio in the Cape, and like the Cape Gazette. You seem to have a legit, legit background. Like it's kind of intimidating the experience um, <laughs> that that you bring um, to a position like this for free. You you worked your whole life just to not work for free. <laughs> to work for free, and and really, it's probably the most rewarding thing I've done. Um, I do have a unique background because I have a fine arts degree and graphic arts and design. Um, I taught special education. I was a school district administrator. I've taught in the private and public sector. Most of my career has been in Cape Penlopen School District. Uh, and I retired as assistant superintendent in 2010. Um, and, and my parting grace was um, the construction of the new Cape Penlopen High School on Kings Highway. I was the project director for that beautiful building. So I'm really proud of that. And that um yeah the uh it, it's funny how many people come um especially for and we're in lacrosse season so I just think of what's coming up in June the big like what do they call it battle at the beach or beach blast or something where right, pe right. people from out of town come down they're like this is a high school because it seems like a college campus um, yeah it, it's beautiful and I mean the main idea was to make sure that we had a building that fits the uh, entryway the gateway into Lewis. Yeah. And I think it's a beautiful point that you get to see that beautiful high school right before you drive downtown Lewis. No doubt. And you even left room for expansion. So kind of you. <laughs> yes. And I was involved in the design committee as a board member. Of course, they invited me to be on the uh, committee for that. So it basically looks like we picked up the school and moved it closer to the highway. Yeah. It's no. very, very similar. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful addition. And we're... Um, on time and under budget. Yeah. Those are the words I like to hear. No, no <laughs> doubt. And it, it, it's a little off, but it does go to say like housing prices going up, building supplies going up, going through COVID and to get something like that done. Um, I, I, I don't have the knowledge to truly appreciate it, but I can appreciate it if that makes sense. Like, I, I don't sure. know, I don't know how it happened. But I'm like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> well, we had a good bid day uh, because the bids went out for all the various pieces of that edition before COVID hit. So um, locked it in. And we, we we were able to get everything done that we had planned to do uh, within the budget that we were allotted. So we're very fortunate, and other school districts in the state are struggling with what you said. You know, they're going out to bid now for construction that they really need. I couldn't imagine. And bid prices are just through the roof. You know, a, a two by four that used to cost $5, you know, now you're paying $10, 15 $25 for a two by four. Yeah. And it's crazy. I just started doing the math in my head mm -hmm. of how many two by fours to make <laughs> just a single classroom. Well, and School buildings are metal studs, so just, you know, uh, exponentially much larger than wood, so gotcha, <laughs> price-wise. Gotcha, gotcha. 
Gotcha. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious about a little bit about your um, special education teaching background. How long did, were you like in the classrooms for? What was your grade or like subject area? Give me a little bit of background. Well, my, uh, my experience before I came to Delaware um, was at, well, I had two different experiences. One was in Richmond. I worked with um, status offenders who were in a residential program. So 50 boys who were in a lot of trouble in a, basically a detention center. They lived on the property. And uh, in, the, in that program, uh, there were, you know, they had learning disabilities. And I, I taught art. I taught special ed classes. I taught shop class. You name it. It was my job. It said there in the fine print. Um, from there, my um, next experience was in the private sector. I worked at Benedictine School in Ridgely, Maryland, which is a residential treatment center for kids with moderate to severe multiple disabilities. Um, so uh, during that time, I learned a lot about special education law and uh, spent a lot of time advocating for students and going to school districts in other states and going to court to win cases where school districts would pay the tuition for students to come to our private program because they couldn't provide for the needs of special ed kids in their own district. So through that experience, learned learned a whole lot. And then um, moved to Dagsboro, Delaware. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, and I came to Cape Henlopen School District and started a, as a special ed teacher at Milton Junior High, which is now where Milton Elementary School will be once the renovation is complete. Okay. And um, taught intensive learning center students grades oh. five through nine. So um, then, then I became the special ed coordinator and facilitator for the entire district because of my background and being able to, to know what programs school districts better be able to provide so we don't have to pay tuition to send our kids to private schools. So, you know, it really was a good, a good way to segue into the public sector and, and do what's right for kids. So if, if I can ask, because that's something I had not really thought of, the cost benefit or the cost analysis between having certain, I, I guess they'd be required through a diagnosis, right? Students would get an IEP, there would be a certain accommodation or a certain skill that needs to be taught and the school either has to provide it or has to pay for it to be provided to the student in correct, a different environment. Correct. And that's from birth to age 21. It does. It's not just kindergarten through 12th grade. It's birth to age 21. And educate me a little bit on the role the consortium plays on that. Because um, does the consortium actually fall, the consortium does fall under like Cape and Lopen school board, right? Correct, correct. So um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, one of my administrative jobs was to, was the principal of the Sussex consortium. In like all 38 so, buildings. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. at the time, yes, we were in, I think at the time we were in about seven locations. There was no such thing as an assistant principal. So it was just me and a real dedicated staff. I mean, you ever want to work with a staff that's dedicated to making kids successful, yeah. those are the people that are great to work with. You go to work every day, no matter how stressed out you are, you yeah. walk into a room and a teacher will say to you, what else can we do to help this kid? Mm. 
So um, the Sussex Consortium serves seven school districts in Sussex County. Okay. So uh, originally there were consortiums set up. So Seaford addressed the students with orthopedic needs and uh, Indian River has Howard Tienis and they serve kids with uh, moderate to severe developmental delays. Okay. And so like Cape sent some of their students to Indian River, Indian River sent their students with autism or severe behavioral disorders to Cape. Um, so it's a tuition-based program because you're sending out a district. So the money follows the child from the district they reside in okay. to the district that provides the programming. So um, that is a tu tuition-based program. So, for example, even CAPE pays tuition for CAPE students to attend that program. And the program runs from self-contained kids with, you know, that, that aren't ready to be out um, in the general classroom, all the way to kids who are fully mainstreamed or out in the community working jobs because we're preparing them to graduate right. and they, you know, need to have some work skills. So we have job coaches out in the community and a, and a very, very supportive community that does, in fact, welcome our students and help to train them and work with our job coaches to make sure they're successful. So when they graduate, they have some place to go and be a successful, productive citizen. Help me to understand a little more as far as like when you were talking about programs that you may have to send out for. So okay. in, in my mind, I think of what a benefit that in Cape and Lopen School District, you have the Sussex Consortium where they have all these specialists. And I'm curious how like programs would be added or certain needs would be met like are there is it super flexible and easy that a student has this particular need um I, I can't even i don't even know if i can think of a correct example but if a student had a particular need to adjust curriculum or services within the consortium so that is local control the wrong word to think of but like local influence where the child gets to stay closer to home versus having to go somewhere in maryland or up to wilmington well, uh, so under the federal law for special education, there's what's called least restrictive environment. So when you, um, when a student is evaluated and determined that they need services, maybe significant level of speech and language services, um, some some academic or cognitive support, maybe counseling, what, whatever the needs are determined by the myriad of tests that are are given and it could even um, be like life skills right something correct okay correct so so you know somebody with a for example i can give i have i had an older sister she's passed away but uh she had she was severe she had moderate to severe disabilities so her skill level was to learn um kind of what's called sheltered workshop skills so she could learn repetitive skills and have a job doing those skills. So she worked in a laundry because she could, she was trained and taught how to run the equipment and then she could fold, you know, go through the whole process and fold the clothes. Gosh. So for her, that's a sheltered workshop. We have other kids who are stocking shelves and filling up coffee pots in Wawa that, and, and they're helping with inventory because of the technology that we have today. And then we have kids who are in regular mainstream high tech, 
science and math classes, but they have gaps in other skills, like so, maybe social skills that's or emotional. That's where my mind went. So maybe an aut a functioning autistic child who just needs a little help to understand social norms, but doesn't really Correct. have a ton of academic needs. Right. So the team gets together and they talk through uh, the needs of the child. And then they talk about the least restrictive environment that the student can be placed in where their needs can be met. And so maybe you might have a student who um, is high functioning academically, but needs someone to make sure they aren't in danger or that social norms are kept. And they might have a one-on-one -on -one paraprofessional, but they're doing the academic work themselves. Gotcha. You know, or you might have another child who's still in the consortium. They're still learning how to communicate. They might be using picture communication because they haven't learned, um, you know, oral language skills yet. And we're working on that. And they might have only four kids in the classroom, a teacher and a paraprofessional. And then the speech person comes into the classroom to do everything in, um, you know, in the environment where the student needs to learn it. Gotcha. And this may be a real simple way to ask it, but what, what's this, why does that matter to a school board member or what is a school board member's impact on the Sussex consortium's education? Is it just a straight funding thing or are there other aspects that I'm unaware of that matter? Uh, uh, so from a, it's, it's easier for me as a school board member, having this experience on the other side to understand how tuition impacts the budget. Okay. Tuition impacts the tax rate because you don't, a school district does not have to go to referendum to increase taxes that pay for tuition for special needs children. Oh. So, so the school board is involved from that end. They approve the tuition rate that's recommended and they have all the information to be able to do that. Um, the school board is um, responsible for approving new programs uh, that are recommended for students, usually on a curriculum level, not, not you know, they, we don't dig way down in there, but we approve personnel. So let's see, let's say that we need an extra teacher or we need some extra support staff members for one-on-one -on -one paraprofessionals for a couple students. We approve those kind of things. And we are involved in hiring the administration for those programs. Okay. That's, I had no idea about the, um, being able to get the funds through the tax rate for, um, the consortium. That's interesting. Now, now part of the funds for teaching come through the state the same way as every teacher's funding comes through the state. I think that's the biggest learning curve for most people who enter the school board is how school finance works in Delaware. Because even if they've been involved in schools and finance in other states, Delaware is very unique in the way that it funds teacher positions. So um, it's wonderful that you might have an extra unit, which might be in a regular classroom. 20 more kids might generate another teacher at the state level. Well, the state doesn't pay 100% of that teacher's salary they might pay it's different for different districts but they might pay 60 percent and the district is responsible for 40 percent well if you're in a district that is struggling financially 
how do you hire that position if you can't come up with the 40 percent so it's all you know balancing level in terms of class sizes when you get your class um units that covers everything so you might get a unit or a teacher for 20 kids but that still means from from those a school generates 30 units let's say well, you still have to pull a gym teacher from that, an art teacher from that, a music teacher from that. So it doesn't mean that every classroom you walk into is going to have exactly 20 kids. Right. You know, now the units are a little different for special education because of smaller class sizes and higher higher yeah. level of need. Yeah, right. I was thinking that that um, it would be less students to earn that unit. What happens Correct. to... What happens to a unit as far as the state fund? So if the, on the local level, for an example, CAPE rejects a teacher unit so that they don't have to pay the 40%, just not saying it is 40, but just to keep the numbers easy. What happens to the 60% that the state would have sent? Does that money still come to CAPE and like gets reallocated in some other way that the board decides? Well, you can apply for the cash option. So hmm. what you've done is you've requested a waiver so you've, you're telling the state, okay, we're not going to hire that position. We're going to request the cash option. And, and what we might do with that, maybe it's a position that's hard to hire. Maybe it's another speech therapist or a unit for a psychologist or something. And maybe we have to go out to contract for those services. So we can take that cash option oh. and put it towards the contract. So we'd still probably have to kick in local to make the pay competitive, but you have a, a cash option to use gotcha. more creatively. And it might be to hire two paraprofessionals instead of another teacher. And does that save on like, say, benefits or pension or something? Because they're not an actual CAPE employee, they're a contractor? Or am I thinking about that the wrong way? Um, sometimes. Situationally? Sometimes. Gotcha. Yeah, it is. It, it depends on the situation, yes. Okay. How um are, are those like contentious talks? And I'm not asking for like gossipy or anything like that, but I'm just I'm super interested. Do people tend to have opinions of the cash is a better option than kicking in the local aspect? Well, so in Cape, we probably don't have to have as many of those conversations right now. <laughs> because our tax base is so good right. that we've been fortunate. However, we have been looking at the long term and before COVID hit um, and we got the extra funding to help us through this time, uh, we were talking about an operations referendum, which we will have to look at again when that. the money goes away from the CARES Act. Talk um, I totally so forgot about how you that. Pay the, the, that's how you pay the local portion is operating expenses. And that covers um, salary. It covers utilities for buildings. It might cover transportation. You know, it's, it's, it's all the things it takes to operate your building, no. not build a building, but operate your building. Right. So um, we can, we have been fortunate to be able to, to be able to have uh, small class sizes, low class sizes, that's one thing we're known for. And our boards have always been very uh, committed to the smaller class sizes. And if um, if the class size gets, you know, a little too big to handle, then we can, we look at ways to hire another teacher or put a 
paraprofessional support in the classroom to help with the students. Um, to get them but, some feedback because you can't just build another class. So if a class got up to 35, you can't just build an addition real quick. It's right. easier to have the second teacher and say, push right. in, try to co-teach, get to more kids, give more feedback because you're kind of stuck with the square footage you got. Correct. Correct. I had forgotten all about that reference. Yeah. That wasn't that set to happen like end of March or. It, it was supposed to happen um, March a year ago. Yeah. We were in, we were coming up onto March 30th right? and two weeks before that yeah. it was declared the pandemic. So we, you know, we canceled all of our efforts. Yeah. It just wasn't a fair time to go to people and say, we want money when, when everybody's future was in question in terms so. of would their businesses survive this? How long was it going to last? Yeah. Nobody, nobody knew it was going to last the year. Um, I think we thought, okay, well, we'll just wait till the fall. Right. <laughs> Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> definitely did not. I wish it would have, um, but it definitely did not. So when you talk about the operation referendum, and basically in my mind, I think of taxes coming in. So when I see these developments on 24, I, every house to me would be like a ka dollars coming in. I'm curious with all the building, why do you need more of an operational referendum if all these farmlands are getting flipped to homes i would assume that's additional tax money like a, a farm a, whatever 50 acres of farmland doesn't pay the same in school taxes as a 50 acre community right correct but a 300 home community brings could potentially bring 300 more students into your district there you go so where do you put them how do you okay. how, how do you pay the local portion of teacher salaries and bring the people in okay. that we need for those students? So uh, that that's what we have to look at. We have to look at our population, and and you know if we're busting at the seams, then it takes five years to build a building. You have to plan ahead. Cape yeah. Lopen High School, the project that I mentioned earlier, was the first time the state allowed square footage based on a formula and demographic information for the future. It was the per so yeah, we right? were the plan. We had about 1300 kids, but we were predicting in 2020 we would have 1600 kids. And as a school board member, when I looked at the unit count in 2020 to see how many kids we had enrolled, we had 1598 kids. Huh. So I felt pretty good that we made <laughs> we we made some good estimates on what yeah. our population was going to be. And we knew by 2020, we would probably be looking at an addition for the high school. Got you. Got you. Okay. That's making sense then, because if you get locked into the square footage, like we were saying earlier, that community brings in so many kids. You don't want a, you don't want a classroom of 35, 40 kids to only have worst case, like one teacher, you want to be able to have the local funds to go ahead and get those kids to keep the ratios down. Correct. Um, uh, an exa another example of that would be the year that we moved into Love Creek Elementary School, um, which was the first year I was on the school board. So that was in 2016. And the school was built for 700 and some students. Um, you're considered at capacity. When you're at 80% capacity, you don't, you no longer have to, to open your school to school choice. To anybody so, within the state. 
outside of your school district or is that even within the school district? It's like, even within. Okay. It's, it's within and without. And there's, there's, you know, a step process you go through for approval. But if you haven't reached the 80% capacity, your school has to be open for choice. Okay. So moving into that building, we were not at capacity. It was a brand new building. We were planning ahead. Um, it would have been nice to have a waiver that year from the state to not have to be open to school choice because we didn't know how many developments would be done and how many kids would really be coming yet. We still had to be open for school choice. So we did all, we did all the choice till we got to almost to that 80% capacity. And then in August, everybody who was going to be moving into the district in the next few months you know, all they had to do was show us where their home was, a contract or whatever. And we started with full class sizes in a brand new building in the first year. Yeah, it was, It's taken about five years to level off. Yeah. And it's still, isn't Love Creek still the most populated of the five elementary yes. schools? Yes. Yeah, yes. Man, that's interesting. And do you think it's, how much of that is location of where the construction is occurring versus I want to be in the newest biggest or I don't know if it's the biggest but the newest school there's a little bit of that but most I would say most of it is because of where that corridor of development was occurring at the time just that farmland so man. you know right so <laughs> the next place the next place we're going to see this is likely to be the Milton area right do, do, you know we, we don't know when but I mean every drive down cave neck road or drive down a back road and there's another development going in somewhere right out there across from cool spring the article the other day what was that 2000 right. residents hotels ymcas yeah. like that is yeah. that is mind-boggling for down here <laughs> um i'm curious and i don't know if you can take like a hard position because i understand everything's situational but balancing when money comes in administrative positions versus boots on the ground, teachers, paraprofessionals, I'm curious some of your philosophies or goals. Like, I don't know what I would do in a school board. I feel like, and again, I'm completely ignorant. I feel like I would be very pro. I want the teacher to student ratio to be as low as possible because I believe in smaller sizes, more feedback, better relationships. You can observe things. You get to know kids better. I've never been an administrator, but I do understand that like things need to get done. <laughs> like you do need planning. You do need leadership. So I just am curious about your philosophies when money's coming in, if decisions need to be made with administrative positions versus teaching positions or classroom positions, how do you go about like trying to decide or figure that out? Well, there is some flexibility in it. However, again, if you go back to the unit count, um, you gen a district generates administrators the same way as they generate teachers. Oh, so you don't have to like, choose. It's not like, hey, we could save up three units of teachers and put it as one administrator kind of a thing? Yeah. With the commitment from this board and even past boards, uh, I don't think that would ever happen. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> <Got> <laughs> because <laughs> the commitment has always been to keep our class sizes low. And, you know, People who've never worked anywhere else might get a little upset about 26 or 27 kids in a classroom. And that does get wieldy. I mean, you know, I, I agree. I've been there. Um, but we talk to people across the state 
and I'm on the Delaware School Board Association. So I'm the uh, I talk to board members across the state, and when they tell me, "Oh, we have 38 kids in a class in one of our elementary schools," and and you know, 38 kids in a class, and we're just going to give them a para. Well, that's great. That means that there's a teacher, 38 kids, and a paraprofessional all in one room. So how close together do you think those kids are sitting? <laughs> so so, so our efforts are always class size to try to keep class, class sizes manageable. Now, it's, it's not an even-steven thing because, you know, you have a bubble year where you might have more fifth graders than any other grade in your building and then they move through year after year so it can be tough um but we generate administrators based on numbers as well and the school board is involved and there are a lot of conversations about um if we qualify for an administrator do we really need the administrator uh, particularly at the district level because you know our, our priority is in the classroom then at the building level and then we look at the district level. Are administrative positions, is it the same kind of, again, just round numbers, 60, 40 state funding versus local funding for them? Or does it get wonkier for some reason? No, it's, it's, it's the same. Okay. It's the same. There's a sal- you don't, neg- administrators can't negotiate for a salary. So there's a scale. Gotcha. And there's a, uh, so there's a state scale and a local scale. Okay. And the, um, there's a, what the, what state regulations provide for is a divide uh, or a multiplier. So they go by, you go by a teacher's salary, but then, and I don't remember any of the multipliers I used to do. I used to have to do all this for the district. That's the only reason I'm a board member who knows this yeah, because right. it takes a long time to learn this kind of stuff. But um, so if I were an assistant principal, I would look at the teacher's scale right. and see right. that a master's plus 10 years of experience gives me this much money from the state, this much money from the district, and now I'm an administrator and I might have a 1.03, and that's just, I'm making that up, but a yeah. 1.03 multiplier. Well, they're working two extra months, right? Because so you're full time, so you've got to increase the salary just from that standpoint of two additional months of labor, right? And then right. The added responsibility. So typically, when you get more responsibility, you get compensated a little more because that's right. kind of the upward scale of just life in general. <laughs> when you're right. responsible for things, you tend to get paid more because if it doesn't go well, it's on you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially if you're working like. 60 hours a week yeah. oh, attending all the functions that they <laughs> yeah. that they attend i mean it's all not all the sports all the after school stuff yeah, yeah arts band concerts it's um never ending discipline <laughs> i'm curious is there any sort of emphasis or philosophy and it could be board wise or it could be yours or maybe i'm just thinking about this the wrong way as far as you know we'd really like to emphasize elementary classes to be lower so that we found achievement gaps can be closed at an earlier age versus later interventions. Does any kind so, of discussion like that happen? Yeah. So my personal philosophy has always been early intervention. You know, that that's where you can make the biggest difference. So, uh, and I would say the board philosophy and even from back when I was an administrator working with the board and not on the board, the, the philosophy of the district has been that, you know, 
elementary schools are where you focus your resources in terms of smaller class sizes and supports. Um, kids are squirrelier still... anyway. I'm sorry, I was trying to give you time yeah. to think, but little kids, if you've ever tried to, if you've ever been to a birthday party for anyone <laughs> under 12, if you go to lefties, like they're squirrely. You cannot imagine trying to keep them focused and corralled in a large class size right. and actually it's get like them to write an herding essay. cats. It's like herding cats <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, so, um, but there are a lot of discussions about class sizes at all grade levels. I mean, you know, I, you don't want to sit, you don't want to find out that you have a, a calculus class at the high school that's got like 50 kids in it. Right. And then, the, the teacher next door that's got a general, maybe an algebra class, and they've got six. So, you know, that the principal, the administration at the high school works on those kind of things. And then it's the building administrator's responsibility to, to tell the district where they need support, what they need, because you have flexibility in the use of that unit count. You get your units not based on subject matter. Are they even based on building or are they just based on the district? It's really, it's really based on, and most people don't understand this either. It's, it's based, that's a good question. It's based on the district. Now there are, there are regulations in place. So for example, in, uh, in, uh, the middle school, let's say they generate 15 special education units. Well, let's make it a round number. Let's make it 10. Okay. They, they generate 10 special ed units. They have to receive 98% of those special ed units in that building. Okay. So there are some regulations like that where you cannot, you can only skim a little bit. Now, what you can do with the 2% and then maybe some other numbers is that's how you get your gym teacher or you get an art teacher, you know, so... Okay. Um, it's, it is tricky. It's generated at the district level, but I would say that every building gets at least 95% of the units they generate. And then we look at, okay, now we, we might need to do something creative here and we need a position that can be shared between these two elementary schools that are both in the same town. So, you know, you might take a teacher and share them between two schools if you need to. I mean, we try not to have to do that, but you know, sometimes it comes down to that. And those are the things that the district administration works on. Uh, you know, we're, I'm, as a board member now, I understand it, so I know the questions to ask. But in general, board members are involved in wanting to know what the unit count is, what the class sizes are, um, are we able to afford the units that we generate, and, and where are we putting the ones that, um, you know, that we generate from other funding. Uh, but they don't roll up their sleeves and say, okay, you know, I want to make sure you put this position here and that position there. That's a district administrative thing. They, those are the people, like you said earlier, with boots on the ground. Yeah. They know what they need and building principals know what they need in their building. Is it? And again, when I ask a stupid question, you can just giggle at me. <laughs> but I'm curious about the relationship with trust because the board is in charge of hiring. And you would, I would assume, I've never hired anybody either. I'm discovering a lot of things I've never done while speaking to you, doctor. <laughs> but I like, if you're a board member and you come into the board, 
I don't think you've hired or had a part of hiring every single principal. I'm curious, or administrator, how do you kind of develop the relationships to understand where they're coming from, to develop trust? Is it easy or is it difficult to, because they're on under contracts, right? I mean, they're kind of not working for you per se, but the board has to approve their contract. But at the same time, right. you want them to be open, honest, and I got to know what's going on. You know, let me help you kind of a thing versus authoritarian boss breaking down. So I guess I'm just curious about that relationship dynamic. Well, um, this year's an off year, um, but in general, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> I know, but in general, school board members are in and out of the schools with the superintendent, talking to teachers, talking to administrators. Um, we get a lot of phone calls from the community and from people who work for the district um, you know, with, with comments or questions or concerns. And then we also, um, are privy to the actual evaluations of the individual administrators. Okay. So taking all that into account and recommendations from the superintendent, you know, we, we can get a pretty good feel of, you know, if there's strengths and weaknesses that, you know, let's focus on the strengths. Let's, Let's put a plan in place to help develop weaknesses. Um, administrators are on a two-year contract, so it's kind of a rolling contract. So at the end of one year, they know whether they're going to get rolled over for the second year of the upcoming contract. Okay. So it always rolls forward. So, um, so that if someone doesn't get renewed or gets on an improvement plan, they have time to to get their act together or decide what they want to do. But we have been very fortunate in Cape with our administration. And, and really in six years, we've hired administrators um, in every building, in every building okay. since I've been on the board because of the, you know, there was some turnover just based on retirements and things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, so we have been able to put together this like impeccable administrative team uh, just at, because we've gotten to know what their strengths and weaknesses are and our, and our administrators that we want to hire administrators that are going to move up, you know, okay. that, how do you build a program unless you hire strong people that, you know, are going to improve and grow and learn and move up. So it's, we've, that's where we are now. We have an administrative team district wide at the building level. We feel like everybody in those positions is someone who is in line for maybe the next principalship or another building, you know, gotcha. moving up. So, um, so that's how you get to see how people do if they move to another building or move up into the next position. And just talking to you, it, it was amazing talking to you for two minutes. I was like, she's got some serious institutional knowledge. <laughs> and I think of administrators and like that has to be a huge component of administration is just simple institutional or systematic knowledge where if you just had that turnover, I feel like you would miss it. Like I couldn't imagine if two brand new people got hired to run a building. Like that would be scary for me if I was a board member because I'd be like, who kind of knows the ins and outs? Who knows how to like solve this little problem or who's the go-to for 
how do you find a coach real quick? Or is the band program good? Like the little nuances of schools. Um, and I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I was getting to a question or just kind of thinking out loud about that. I guess I was interested in the philosophy of moving, hiring people to move up. I hadn't thought about that either. Why? And that's so important because it's just, it keeps when retirement happens, you have people within your system that can then fill those roles. Is that why it's right. such a big deal? Yeah. And, and really the, the next layer of administration it's supervisors and directors of district office. It's also their job to support those people in those positions. So, you know, if, if, if I see, if I were at district office and I see that a principal doesn't know how to do unit count or their assistant principal doesn't know how to do unit count, let's teach them, let's work with them. So, you know, it's a, it's a, my philosophy is the job for people at district offices to support the buildings and make sure they're learning what they need to learn in case they're the next person to move up. You know, if I were the superintendent, and this is Bob's philosophy too, he wants to make sure he has people on his team that could be the next him because he's not going to be there forever. That, you know, none of us are going to be there forever. Gotcha. But, so but hopefully, you hire the, people. yeah, right. The school yeah. or the district itself would last longer than anyone within it, and you just want to keep kind of refreshing it or renewing it, right? That's a good philosophy, and I would assume that would make Cape a pretty um, wanted, desired destination for people looking to not just teachers but even administrators. I'm curious how competitive those positions are, as much as you can talk about it. Well, I mean, basically what I can say is that anytime we have a posting for an administrative position, we have to do some heavy screening to, down to a manageable group for for uh, interviews. That many. Because huh? you can't interview everybody. Right. So, I mean, it's the same way for teachers. I mean, when you have one elementary position and 40 people apply for it within the first, you know, 48 hours. Wow. You can't, you can't interview 48 people. Yeah. So you have to do some, you know, so the administrative teams get together and they, you know, review and screen resumes and recommendations and references. And it's, it's a pretty tough process. But yes, Cape is um, a district of choice, not only for kids, but for teachers. And um, everybody wants, everybody wants to be there. Our, our teacher scale, um, the monies are at the more experienced levels. So you might have someone say, well, Cape doesn't pay very good because they're looking at a first year teacher scale and mm -hmm. maybe another district, a smaller district might have better money at the first or second year of the scale. But Cape wants experienced people. We don't, we're not in a position where we say we can't hire them because they're too expensive. We want to hire them because they have the experience and the knowledge and the education to do the job. So when you look at a teacher scale for Cape, that's where the money is. And gee, lucky for us, people get trained and then they come to Cape. <laughs> <laughs> poachers, you poachers. I mean, we get new, we get brand new people too, because they yeah. just want to be at Cape. But I'm right. saying if people are moving here and really looking at the money, yeah. they might go someplace else first, but we get them 
Yeah, that will. And I guess that's uh, just thinking of the counterpoint, that'd be an interesting, that's an interesting like tactical position if you're a smaller district with less of a tax base where you'd hope you'd hire someone straight out of college, they'd see you pay more and then maybe they just stay with you because you like them and you save on the back end. I don't know. I, right. I watch a lot of basketball and we like NBA players. You always talk about the contracts and like the, what's better front loaded or back loaded. That's what my mind went to. Um, sorry. Well, for us, it's the back loaded. Right. And, <laughs> but, but it's nice to know that like, cause I think you do get better obviously with experience, but also with education. So it's nice to hear that there's an emphasis on, Hey, if you come to Cape, get paid more by go, go and learn more. And we value that and we'll pay you more to bring that expertise to our students because you'll be a better teacher. Right. Yeah. No, that, I, that, that's a sound philosophy. I'm, I'm curious. And again, uh, as much as you can talk, but curious about the board union relationships and in like negotiating contracts and the role someone like with your experience and inside kind of being on both ends as a teacher, knowing like what teachers would want. And then as administrator, understanding probably more budget stuff than a normal classroom teacher would understand. Um, do you have a favorite side? No, I'm just kidding. That so, would be terrible. <laughs> so it's funny, it's funny that you asked me that because as a teacher, I was a member of the union and I was on the negotiations team for teacher contracts. Oh, no way. As an administrator for Cape Penn Open School District, um, the years that I was assigned to negotiate, be on the negotiations team or actually facilitate the whole process, um, we did uh, teachers contract and a support staff contract wow. and with, with great success and probably in the shortest amount of time ever at the time. So for example, the, per the contract I was charged with the first time I was in charge of the whole process had, they had come off of a five year negotiation with uh, for a five-year contract. So the contract wasn't even good for a whole school year. It took that long to for them to come together and work through the issues. Wow. So when I came on board, of course, that, that wasn't going to happen. Plus, people, my style is everybody's on the same team. We're all in this together. We're on the same team. Let's be honest. Let's work together. Let's talk about what you really want and why. We'll tell you what we can really do and why. Not hold everything in your pocket. Well, we want this and, oh, we'll give you this. But knowing in the back of my mind, if they don't like that, we have a little bit more to give. You know, we, I didn't want to play that game. Are there, so it's and, a, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Okay. But I was curious with the specifics of, and again, as much as you can, like sticking points. Cause I'm interested how like visions line up as far as we got to get three hours of planning or, uh, you know, really okay. we only want you to have. So, so the most important things in the contract are, uh, planning time, um, money <laughs> from a local level, right? Cause you can't, yes. you can't afford yeah, the Correct. Or is it a benefit? Um, is it actually like benefit money or is it local money or is it the like extra benefits. position? Okay. It's benefits and salary. Um, what 
you'll hear people throw the EPER around. It's E-P-E-R, extra pay for extra responsibilities. So so that also ties into money. So money's always the biggest thing. The grievance procedure or disciplinary stuff is always a big topic. And then um, those are the, those are the biggest issues always. So, and then fixing the language so that it really does say what you mean it to say. Um, and then what do you do about situations where, you know, that, that come up over the years. So now, now there's all this technology stuff that you have to consider. So if you're going to put cameras in your building, do you want them, you know, there has to be language in there because the cameras are there for safety reasons, not for evaluative reasons. So there's little oh, nuances here and there. I didn't there. even think about but, that. Wow. So, so when I was on, when I facilitated the process for both of those contracts, we were done in less than three months, not five years. So, so guess <laughs> what? I come onto the school board. The first thing that there that's time to do is negotiations for the professional staff. And then a year or a year and a half, two years later, negotiations for the support staff. So, you know, I, I got nominated to be the board rep on that committee, <laughs> on both of those committees. And I have to tell you, and then um, Jenny Nauman is the assistant superintendent now, which used to be my job. And uh, she's awesome. And she has the same philosophy. And we went in there and we used a... Um, a different process there's a, a there's a fancy name for it now it was just the way i did things before now it's there's a fancy interest-based interest-based bargaining ibb okay we did the teacher contract in two and a half days Compared. and all we were doing on thursday and friday was cleaning up the language so it would say what we needed it to say a year and a half two years later we did the support staff contract in three and a half days and there's more different subgroups in that because you're talking about nurses custodians bus drivers paraprofessionals secretaries you know so it would naturally take longer but it was we were all on one team we all worked together we worked full days we were fully committed checked in in the morning had lunch together and then you know we didn't pull any punches and I was the board representative with, and then Jenny was the district representative. And then, you know, if there was anything we wanted to do that we felt we needed to keep the, the keep the superintendent informed about, you know, we did, but. Two and a half it, days. You know, so earlier you'd said five years for one negotiation compared to two and a half days yeah. for this one. And it, it, the biggest difference was literally just being upfront and honest, like, hey, you guys want more money? Do, do, does the board and the assistant super say, again, round numbers, hey, we got a million dollars. How do you want to spread it out? Is that like, the, or hey, so, your interest is in more paid coaching positions or more paid extracurricular positions, EPR. Um, here's, we got 200 grand for it. How do you want it spread out? Is that... So, well, what happens is you always have your business manager on the committee and the first day they, you know, come right out and give you a financial report and show you, uh, show the team, the whole team, where the money is, what it's being used for and how much money we have that we can negotiate with within this contract. Do they trust and, you? And we're not. 
the the union or is that like verified beforehand and i'm not trying to be dramatic or anything but i guess i'm i've heard of nba labor negotiations and nfl which is my reference point where like there's always you're not you're cooking your books to be at a loss kind of a thing and i wonder well, if that all of happens. our books have to be online so all that information <laughs> is public information gotcha. we're audited so it, all that information is there gotcha and in in the course of this finance review we the business manager for the new people on the team gives a little overview of what you can spend where so for example if you have all this money in capital projects and it looks like a lot of money it can't be spent on teachers you know we can't spend this on salary it's for construction you know you might have, let's say you have 86 million dollars over here for the construction of the high school and four elementary school additions or whatever it is well that looks like a lot of money but that money is earmarked for construction it cannot be used you know this money is for energy it comes from the state it has to be used for energy so this is the taxpayers money this is how much we've put in curriculum it's a board approved budget detailed budget and you know this is what's in contingency and this is how much we have to keep for technology so we have a little bit here, you know, that we can use for benefits and we have some. Okay. So, and when you come in and you're right up front and you just, you tell people what you can afford, they can decide where they want the money. Here's how much you have. What's most important. That's a good flow. I, to me, that does make it way simpler. I guess to me, the, con, the only contentious point I could think of would be like, you guys are holding back. $10 million for a rainy day fund. We only think it should be $5 million. Spend that $5 million on blank. Does that kind of conversation, like do you have that kind of wiggle room or is rainy day or contingency funds more um, regulated? You can only have a certain percent, and I don't remember what that is. You can gotcha. only have a certain percent in reserve. Okay. The time that your reserve is the biggest is over the summer when you have to still pay salaries and you're not going to get your tax money till September. And then you're going to have your stragglers who don't pay on time till <laughs> January. So you have to have a certain amount of contingency money to make sure you can pay your teachers. Gotcha. Um, but the percentage of that, that goes into reserve or contingency, um, we know we plan, we prioritize what the money is for. It's not just sitting there because we might need it someday. It might be sitting there because we've, we've said, okay, we're going to need a brand new K to 12 science curriculum in 2024. Let's start saving and for it. We know what curriculum buys cost. Let's say they, you know, let's say elementary is just half a million dollars. Okay, so we got to start having, we have a curriculum line, but that's for replacement every year of other things. So then we're starting to build a contingency over here for the new curriculum that's coming in the future. So th those kind of things are spelled out in that meeting. Gotcha. And you would be surprised because the people who participate from, from, you know, the professionals that come and participate on this team, they're pretty well versed in, in how it works because we have a, a finance committee that we have community members and teachers on that so they they have seen the budget as it's been developed in the past so they have the language 
and the ability to understand the money part, which is the toughest part. Now, there might be a few people on the committee that don't. They ask a lot of questions and, you know, do their homework. You know, we do we do the homework together. Yeah, I'd be that guy. I'd be the guy slowing down everything. I'd be like, excuse me, <laughs> why can't we just put $3 million? And, and he'd be like, no, stop it, Sean. Stop it. <laughs> like, my fault. Uh, you, you just brought up another committee. Like, so how much time weekly... Do you, like, if this was your job, how many hours are you putting in for this unpaid position for you? On average. <laughs> could you, could you even, even have an average? I don't even know. I know that um, for me, again, this year is different, but, you know, trying to get into schools like a few times a month. Um, I am on, every board member has two committees that they sit on. And then they can, they are alternates to other committees that they can either show up for or they go when somebody else can't go. So for me, the last four of the five years, I've been on the Delaware School Board Association Committee uh, or School Board Association, so Board of Directors. So that's two committees because I'm the vice president of the Board of Directors. And then the other committee is the Legislative Priorities Committee. So my committees meet in Dover. Every each of them meets every other month. So at least once a month, I'm in Dover. Okay. And um, of course, Legislative Priorities. We review every bill that has anything that has anything to, that's going to affect Title 14. And then What's title education. Four? Okay. Education, and um, and we talk about whether as a school board association, are we going to support the bill? Are we going to oppose the bill? So y'all have are your own gonna, like little union to kind of are we gonna, or are we going to remain neutral? My job is okay. not to tell them my opinion. My job is to find out what my board's opinion is and bring it back. So you know, theoretically, it's not always going to be the same. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, so, but there's board members from the entire, from every school district in the state. There's a superintendent representative on there, not a voting person, but, a, you know, he comes and gives a superintendent report. Last, uh, this past week, we had Dr. Bunting, Secretary of Education, was there, and the Deputy Secretary of Education to talk about different things that are going on and the CARES Act and plans that schools have to put in place in order to transition back to in-school and things like that. So um, it's it's very interesting to me. I would hate to miss out on that. You, know? <laughs> you, you seem, and I mean this in the most sincere way, you seem so like geeky about this that it's I just know. like a lifestyle, <laughs> right? Like it's just... It's like what, it's almost like a hobby for you that would be like knitting in retirement. You're like, no, policy is my yarn. It's what I weave yeah, yeah. together. So people think I'm artsy fartsy, and then, <laughs> which I am. But then when I start talking about this stuff, they go, oh no, maybe she is a geek. Yeah, right. So yeah, that, that would be like, so then it doesn't seem like it's like, yeah, you know, I spend about 10, 15 hours a week. It just, I almost, it looks like to me that it's just kind of part of your life. Like you don't know what text message or call you're going to get but you seem to enjoy taking the call to answering the text message, having like the thought process, the thought exercise behind things. I do. And I, 
and I like getting calls from the community with concerns. I, you know, it, I don't get defensive if people are upset or have concerns about what's going on. Having been in special education as a background, you know, if somebody called me and they were yelling at me because something was going on with their kid that they didn't like, I thought, well, thank goodness this child has somebody in their corner. Nice advocate. And I would be yelling for my kid too. So yeah. let's hear what they're saying. Try really to listen to and and move on. And I'm and that's I'm the same way as a board member. It doesn't. I don't get defensive. I want to hear what the person has to say. You know, I might I might tense up a little bit because they're yelling at me. But <laughs> take a breath, listen to what they're yeah. saying, and then you know I I. I like to work through issues with people and have successful outcomes. So that happens. You, you never know as a board member, you never know when that's going to happen. There might be a contentious issue or it might just be a one shot deal where somebody is frustrated. Sometimes right. I have to refer them back to the proper chain of command because yeah, right. it's a one shot deal, but at least I've been able to listen and help them know what to do next because my, as a special educator, I know the hardest part for every parent is how to navigate the system. And if no one tells them how to navigate the system, what, they do whatever they need to do to get help for their kid. Yeah, because if and you don't you know, can't blame them. and if you don't know where to look, you kind of just start shouting to get attention to hope right. that the right person well, comes you, along. It's like, hey, man, you're supposed to be over here. Come on. Oh, well, <laughs> right. I mean, well. You figure they're frustrated. If I got to call a district office when I was an administrator, that meant that person had already tried the teacher, probably already tried the principal, felt like they weren't getting <laughs> listened to, you know? So of course they're going to be upset. Then tell me what you need and then let's work it out together. Very restorative so. mindset, <laughs> a very pro solution <laughs> mindset, which is nice. It's nice to hear people who want to like bring people together despite the frustration they're feeling. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious and I, for, I, I didn't, I'm really bad with names of boards. The, the Delaware state education board, did you say? Okay. So it's the Delaware school board association. So the Delaware, how much influence again, as much as you can talk about it, everybody's like reopen the school, reopen the school, put all the kids in here. And I know a lot of people who wish kids could come in, but it's also, I think, technically against the law if you don't have the space. And I'm curious about the dynamic about that board trying to lobby the governor or the governor's staff, I guess it would be, to influence his legislation. Does it have any kind of influence or power like that? Well, I would call it participation. Okay. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> superintendents and the governor and the Delaware School Board Association, the executive director of that association, um, and some of the other administrative organizations in the state, like the uh, super, well, I already said, like the superintendents, and, you know, they, they meet on a regular basis via Zoom or phone conference, whichever, with during COVID about COVID every week and they have a lot of conversations about how to do things how to make how to make things happen so in in the sense of covid they've they've provided ways for the governor to think how things can be done to meet the guidelines that he's putting in place 
So, for example, CAPE was the only school district in the state to start off the school year, this past school year, with kids, elementary kids, K to five, in school five days a week. Gutsy move. Gutsy, gutsy was, move. And, and you know, and, and what's even gutsier is we stuck to it. We made a decision and we stuck to it. Now, not everybody wanted to send their kids. So we had the other options for people who didn't feel safe. We didn't want to make people come to school. Yeah, right. So as soon as people realized that, gee, maybe school is the safest place to be. It's a controlled environment. It's, you know, we're not, we're not uh, letting every person off the street come in the building and visit. We had to, we had to slow to, you know, we couldn't do volunteers and there's a lot of things we couldn't do that it's a shame we couldn't do, but the kids were actually safer than being at home because maybe mom and dad had to go to work and they were going to be left alone or maybe they would have to take their kids with them, you know, and be out when, you know, at the height of this. So, um, the governor used CAPE as an example for other districts to decide how to realize that it can be done. And we had every committee under the sun you could believe planning on what we could do and still follow these guidelines to be able to bring kids back to school in you know elementary and then in the hybrid versions at the secondary level where we had the, the cohorts two days in, one day remote, and then... Um, Cohort two was two day, you know, was one day remote and two days in. So um, we've increased participation of those part-time cohorts starting after spring break um, to try to get them in school more, you know, more often. That was the Wednesdays, um, right? Yeah. Coming in on yeah, every so, other Wednesday for your cohort. Correct. Yep. And then um, in, in our elementary schools, where we have room, we are bringing people back because they all just about everybody wants to be back. So, you know, we, we were prepared to be creative in the beginning. If we got more than we could handle, let's say maybe let's say everybody wanted to come back in Love Creek, but only 15% wanted to come back in Rehoboth. We were prepared if we were going to have to do busing or, um, you know, to even out the population, if we needed to do that in the beginning, we did not have to do that. So, and in, so in most schools though, I would say we're almost to capacity and the transition of kids coming back in is not happening, happening in some cases, it's not happening as fast as people would like it, but that's because we have to look at the adjustments. We have to look at the space. We have to look at travel in the building. We have to look at, you know, how many kids are going to be in the cafeteria at that time, you know, for social distancing and, those, so it's it's very methodical. That's very detailed. And that's what you mean with capacity. It's not capacity like we were talking about earlier with the state of Delaware formula for 700 kid elementary school. It's the CDC guidelines that the governor is following for capacity. Correct. So if you measure the square footage and you'd have to remain three feet, I guess it's, is it, was it three or, I know it's going to three in public, but were schools at three or six? Do you remember? Well, it's supposed there's some there's some leeway in that. Recently, there's been leeway in that where right. it can be th- three foot three feet with masks. Okay. And it can be six feet without masks. We're we have been very fortunate, and so we're sticking with the six foot thing in most 
you know, with masks. Okay. The kids get the kids get mask breaks. There's mask free zones. You know, things like that. If a kid needs to have a break, they can request one, and it will be granted. Uh, you know, when they're outside, if they social distance, they don't have to wear masks outside. Right. Um, you know, so, but it's tricky because no matter what we want to do, we still have to make sure that we can still follow those regulations that have been, you know, out there from, from the well, governor. Just as a, for instance, as much as you can, what would have happened if Cape would have been like, ah, we're not following your guidelines. We're just letting everybody come back with no masks and it's a big old party like it's 1920. Like what like does National Guard come in or do you lose funding? Well, I don't know what the governor would have done. He who knows? We could have we would have been in, yeah, in deep trouble yeah, because it would we would have been considered to be breaking the law. Right, it's a state that that's part of what it's hard for me to understand. I understand like you're saying the emotion if people are fervently shouting, "Open up the school, open up the school." And it's like, yeah, but if the person who pays 60% of the bill is kind of telling us we have to do something, my fear would be we don't follow. Do you want your taxes to over double so that we can maintain what we have? Because the funding comes from the guy that's saying, or the person right. that's saying six feet with masks. Right. And I'm like, I, I, and plus he has the national guard, like they have tanks. I don't know. Do we want that in elementary <laughs> schools? <laughs> like, no, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it, I don't think so. Yeah. And you know, other districts were very hesitant and, uh, you know, to bring kids back because they weren't sure they could do it. Right. And so I can't blame them. We're fortunate that our buildings, you know, the most of our buildings had large enough classrooms because they were newer yeah. That we were able to meet these, you know, six, the social distancing guidelines and we, but the scheduling that goes into that so that you don't have three, fourth, you know, I mean, let's say last year, it's time for fourth graders to go to lunch and, oh, you dude, know, herd. Th three it's minutes cattle. apart, you know, maybe two minutes apart, every fourth grade classroom ends up down in the lunchroom. Well, mm -hmm. that's a herd, like you said. It's not that way this year. There's one classroom in the hallway yeah. going to lunch, then the next one, then the next one, you know, and they have to, you know, I mean, it's, we're very careful. It's not, and we don't, it's not that we love doing it and imposing rules on kids. I have, you know, I have uh, two of my three grandkids are in elementary school and, uh, you know, one of them, she's a free spirit. And nothing bothers her. She doesn't care if she has to wear a mask and walk down the hall in single file. She's all over the place with her arms and legs and dancing the whole time. But she's but she keeps social distance while she's doing it. The other one, he's a little bit older. He's more sensitive. And every time there's a new rule, he, he in his mind, he thinks, what did I do wrong? How come there's another rule? It's tough on him. So, you know, when they say that we need, you know, that these kids are stressed out, some of them are stressed out because they thrive in school and they're successful in school because of the social aspects or the group sitting together and reading on the floor oh, or, God. you know, Just his the classmate is helping play. him with his writing exactly. and now they can't sit together. And, you know, it, so, yeah, it's, it's not the best for everyone. Yeah. And what are buses the biggest sticking point going forward as far as getting more kids in buildings? So I believe the three feet now on the 21st, right? The, I, 
And I don't know if that applies yeah. to schools, but I just remember reading the governor May 21st, three feet apart. Vaccinations seem to be going really well. So you'd anticipate people can be closer. Is it just well, we, buses? Cause there's so, well, like we a, discussed that a little bit. We discussed that at, at the school board associations, you know, Delaware school board association. We discussed that a little bit with the secretary because that is the, probably the biggest sticking point statewide is you know, when you can only have a small number of students on the bus, that means you have to run double bus runs or triple bus runs because you can't get all the kids that want to come back to school into school on one bus. You can't, put, you know, you can't throw them all on there all together. So you have to be a little creative in the way that you schedule your buses. And right now, the guidelines for seating on the bus have not been changed now there's cares act money that can be used especially this is the third batch of money and this is the money that plans have to be put in place for the start of next school year and the state is requiring the department of ed is requiring um planning and implementation and you know you have to show how you're going to use the funds it's very detailed but but you know additional busing or buses um, can be included in in that plan. In CAPE, the only buses that we have that are owned by CAPE and driven by CAPE employees are the Sussex Consortium buses. Huh. All the other buses are bus contractors who bid for the runs. It's a very fair process we use, and um, you know, and the, and they bid for the runs and have a contract to bus students. So statewide finding bus drivers is an issue. I was about to say, so early on in the pandemic, I listened to a Freakonomics podcast. I don't know if you're familiar, but yeah. Okay. It's like, again, just geeky dudes with great personalities that bring up (laughs) great points, but they had one about um, the beef shortage that was coming. And they're like, we have more demand. So the packaging has to change from restaurants to grocery stores. So the supplies backed up because it's a different regulation. But no one's thinking about, I just can't make a cow appear to give you more beef. Like yeah. cows have to grow. And then the farmers are like, the pandemic's not going to last forever. So if I invest in this huge infrastructure to have another 500 cows on my farm, but that's only for a year, I'm going right. to lose all that later on. So when you talk about the buses... I think it's very easy for real people to be like, get more buses, get more bus drivers. And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure the bus drivers would have to get like some sort of training. And then do they want to do that? Then do we want to keep them on staff? Are people going to want jobs just for a year? Are the contractors going to want to buy 10 extra buses so that they can fulfill this for a year? But then what do they do with those buses Right. when the CARES Act goes away? Because CAPE would no longer need those services. Right. Well, and before before COVID, the for years before COVID, every year at the start of the school year, you'd read in the news journal and through and you know through the media throughout the state the difficulty in finding enough bus drivers to get kids to and from school. Now we've been fortunate that we have not been short, but I know like Indian River started the last regular school year that we had, like they were short 30 some bus drivers. That many? Yeah. So, oh I mean, God. that, that 
can be a big problem if you're short well, bus drivers. Where our we're, where we're fortunate is that even though our bus drivers are in competition for runs and getting their contracts met and, and you know all that kind of stuff, if if a bus driver, a bus contractor has a bus go down and they break down. They can call another bus driver, another bus contractor, and say, hey, man, my bus went down. Nobody's got one for me. The district's buses are all tied up with this, that, and the other thing. And so they have a relationship enough that they will say, okay, I got this bus. It's sitting in the back. It's, you know, it meets all the state guidelines. You can borrow it for a week till you get your bus fixed. Oh, or you can borrow my driver. My, I have a driver for you. They can drive for you temporarily. Or we have people in the school district who are, you know, have their CDL bus driver licenses. If we, if the contractor needs them, they can drive a bus. But it takes a lot of creative scheduling, and and Cape's been fortunate to be able to do that. But COVID is, you know, people are using districts are using money for transportation because that's the biggest thing. You, because you're paying the expense for the fuel, you're paying the expenses for double runs. You know, plus busing is expensive anyway. Now, the caveat to that is the state pays 90% oh. of your transportation. Oh, no. I didn't know that. They do. But they used to pay 100%. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, they, so they don't pay 100% anymore. Um, but because they pay 90%, they can tell you, no, you don't get another bus. No, you don't oh, get another bus why run. That's why the school times had to be staggered, the high school and the elementary, because we had right. to, Cape had to determine a need. I remember that. Right. Okay. So no, you don't get another bus run unless you prove to us that you really and truly need it and you've tried everything else first. And I guess the alternate would be if the board got lobbied or if the board felt it was worthwhile, you would the board could pay for it, but it would be a local hundred percent local funds. Correct. Because the board always right. has complete discretion over the local fund aspect in that right. manner. So like is the solution more buses or just two kids to a seat with a mask on? <laughs> like or can you not say because that that's not like the best way to get things done is to be that blunt. Yeah. Well, uh, but I think what's happening is the superintendents um, and the school board, school board members, school board association is, um, you know, they're, I guess you would call it lobbying. I mean, they're making phone calls, asking questions, wanting to know, you know, come on, man, help us out here. You go to your, and you know, the fortunate thing in Delaware is you're, legislators are your neighbors so yeah. you can pick up the phone and say hey we need some help here can you talk to the governor or can you do this or that or the, you know so um yeah I, that transportation right now is i would say the biggest issue that superintendents and board members and school districts in general are trying to get over that hump to be able to put more kids on the bus, especially for the fall, right? You know, even more so for the fall, um, and and get that taken care of. You can use the CARES Act money, but why would you want to use it all on bus drivers if you're going to need mental health support? You're going to need all this um, instructional or learning recovery, learning loss. So scared programs, of that. So you know, scared of that. 
summer and after school and in school tutoring and who knows, you know, and more counselors to help kids re-socialize back into, you know, kind of a normal, a new normal if, schedule. If you're not used to dealing with being teased a little bit, not that bullying's okay, but kids kind of mess with kids. And if you're out right. of that environment, like if you're, if you haven't been to a playground in two years and you yeah. just get plopped on a playground, it's almost like, again, social norms, your mind could be blown because developmentally you've grown, but socially you've been stagnant if you've been at home and that right. would lead to a ton of anxiety and kids don't get over that to learn. Like they got to process that in some way. Well, especially, especially an only child. Yeah. No. Yeah, exactly. Think exactly. about that. You know, you got five kids in the family you are used to beating each other up right. and telling, telling each other, <laughs> calling each other names and saying terrible things. Yeah. So when you get to school and that happens, you don't care because yeah. you've been there, but you're an only child. You've never dealt with that. And now you walk into school and hear a little bit of that. It's like, where am I? What's going on? You know? <laughs> Our, and as, again, as much as you can, I, I hate, trying to give that caveat, um, every question, but I don't want to be a jerk and I'm not trying to like put you on the spot or anything, but like for the fall is the mindset as many kids as want to five days a week, K to 12, or are you even able to have a mindset at this point with we're working towards this goal, repeat cohorts of instead of 15 to a classroom, 25 to a classroom, I guess our goal, our goal, our plan A will is to bring everybody back five days a week, teachers, kids, everybody. But we have a plan B and a plan C because even let's say with the governor's guidelines, we can do that. Let's say we can. Yippee, we can. That's great. But you, we, there might be a whole contingency of people who say, I don't care what the governor says. My kid is not coming back to school yet because whatever somebody might, because of the vaccine situation or because of family, uh, family members who are at risk and things right. like, you know, so we're going to have to have, even if, even if we have five days, I think we're going to have to have a contingency for people who don't want to come back. Then we're going to have to have a plan in case we can't bring everybody back because the guidelines won't let us and we can't fit everybody back. So we're really in the same situation we were in this past fall where we had a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. And we were ready at any time to, to switch plans. So when we started five days a week with a K to five in person this school year, we still, we were ready to if we needed to, if we found that having kids in school was dangerous and that, you know, the coronavirus was being spread in school because of school, we already had a plan in place and knew what we would need to do if we had to change everything and go back to 100% remote. So we're going to have to look at this fall exactly the same way, where we, you know, best you, you have a plan for your best case scenario but you also have a plan for the worst case scenario and probably a couple plans in between. So people have been working on this, you know, plans have been, uh, things have been discussed, I would say probably since, well, since, since the beginning of March, at least. I would be so mad if I'm sitting there and my job is to make three plans 
in detail to be executed, knowing that only one is really going to go down, I'd be so upset about like the time wasted. It would just, it would frustrate me. Not that it's not like worthwhile or needed, just me as an individual thinking like, I just spent two weeks figuring out how buses could function <laughs> and it didn't even, it didn't even matter. It didn't, it didn't even get used. Yeah. Like, thank, thank God for those people that can just keep grinding like that because mentally it's exhausting to try to think of every little contingency and plan for the unknown. Well, and that's why when we did this for this past school year, we had, we had one overarching committee and, and so I was the board representative on that, on the big committee, but then we had subcommittees for everything. One for instruction, one for HVAC, one for transportation, one for food services and lunches, one for discipline, one, you know, one for travel in the building, one for signage in the building. I mean, there were subcommittees and I was on a couple of the subcommittees, but so each committee dove down into, you know, deep details in each area and then came back with recommendations to the big committee so if you don't do it that way one person or a small group of five can't think of everything yeah you have to have your experts in their area come up with plans for their area so they can tell us what's possible and what's not i'm sorry no we can't do that you know or yes yeah we here's how we can do that it's it's pretty neat not to suck up or compliment you too much but it's pretty neat that you're (laughs) That, that you're like, you seem to just trust the people in positions. You, you, you don't seem to be a micromanager, if that's the right word. You seem to like trust once you get to know someone, you're like, all right, this person, I value their judgment because they're there. They know. And you also seem to realize you can't know, nor should you know and control everything. So you learn that when you become a building principal. Because the first year, the first year you're in the job, you don't know everybody. You don't know who you can trust and who you can't. So you're, you have to be a good listener. And then the second year you start to know who you can trust and who, and, and you, and you, as a leader, I think it's, I think it's a leader's job to mentor and facilitate leadership in others. And you know what? If you give somebody the responsibility to do something, you know, when I was younger and I, if I wanted you to do something, I would, maybe I would be like, well, but you got to do it my way. Right. <laughs> well, why would you have to do it my way if the end result is the same? So you give people the opportunity to show their leadership skills. And guess what? If they screw up, you just jump in, you support them, you fix it and you move on. And they learn from it you learn from it and that's the kind of management style I've always had so I give people responsibility and they rise to the occasion it's it's that self-fulfilling prophecy yeah because they're they have ownership over it right they're not they're, they're not feeling like there's a manual it almost reminds me of like beetlejuice when the people are dead and they're trying to figure out how to get through they have the vcr this thing reads like vcr directions and like nobody can figure out the right way and like the end result is i just want to get to the afterlife right right and our end result is hey we just want kids to learn and achieve so you can't micromanage a fifth grade art class or a 10th grade biology class let's put you in charge and empower you because 
you should be the expert. That's why you got educated. That, that's, right. it, it's so, a very refreshing philosophy. He, yeah, because people don't learn unless you give them a chance to. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious. I want to talk maybe about two more topics um, if you have the time. I, I don't want to keep you up too, too late. But I know, house is it House Bill 198, the Black History, Black History Education yeah. or Black History Bill? Do you remember the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's House Bill 198. I know it's House Bill 190. I can't remember the exact name on it. I'm curious about how you envision that it did pass, right? So, how do yeah. you, is that like now an elective? Is that sprinkled into every single class? Like art will have components of this, math will have components of this. Does this just go into like a social studies curriculum? How do you see the implementation of that? Well, I see it the same way that I used to teach. <laughs> I'm a product of the call of the of art school <laughs> from the '70s, where um, it was very important to infuse multicultural education in into everything. So, Black American history is American history, but my in my experience, my teaching experience when I taught history or math or science or social studies, my job, I felt like my job was to make sure that these kids in my class knew that it wasn't just old white people that formed the world. You know? So I had that, I had that built into my own curric curriculum, every subject area. Back then I had to add it myself, right. you know? Um, so I, I, I think, that this bill is a starting place for school districts that haven't taken it seriously. So I see it as for Cape, we already are making sure that our teachers are culturally responsive or responsive to student to the various cultures of our kids. Can I pause and, you there for a moment? Because that's sure. where I start to get lost with teachers being culturally responsive versus educating on um, the contributions of African-Americans to history. And it's kind of interwoven. Right. And uh, so that's when people hear house bill 198 and they hear black history, it's not just knowing more about, African-Americans contributing to society. It's actually teachers being responsive to students coming from that culture. Am I, am I getting that right? Or what am I saying yeah, wrong I about guess, that? I guess, I guess that's not really written into the bill. It's just kind of implied. Okay. Um, but you know, when you hear the terms that people use, which I didn't realize were such hot button terms, until recently, but when you think about um, equity and oh, inclusion, triggers diver diversity. Don't you know say those it. those they've become hot button terms. Yeah. Um, beyond what the actual definition of the words are, I think with the with the bill, it forces districts who aren't may not have already started integrating black 
Americans into American history or into, um, you know, making their curriculum reflective of the accomplishments of everyone, not just a certain race or ethnicity. Um, look at more than just one month a year. I mean, Black history didn't happen in February. <laughs> it doesn't only happen in February. Yeah. Well, isn't Martin Luther <laughs> so, King? Isn't Martin Luther King Day in January? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like the, the irony. So, so I think um, I think at the time that it was adopted, I think it was a starting point, and I feel the same way about the bill. I think it's a shame that we have to legislate it. I do think it's a shame that it has to be legislated. But it is a starting point because we pay we pay for the sins of others, you know. And and Cape has Cape teaches a multicultural curriculum. Um, you know, there's been professional development for many many years on you know dealing with and being inclusive and um, in the classroom and. You know, it's important that we have teachers, you know, diversity in our staff so that they're reflective of kids of color. So, you know, I, I, I'm a kid sitting in a class and, you know, maybe I've never seen anybody of my race who's successful. It's important I see someone of my race that's successful. I think those things are important. I, I think it's a shame that we have to legislate them. And, gee, I thought we came a long way. But right now, there's just all this divisiveness and, you know, people spouting words out there, making assumptions about others because they don't understand or they're fearful. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's um, very frustrating to me. So then it, it doesn't, the, the House bill itself, yeah, see, I just looked at it from a pure academic standpoint of instruction. I didn't even think of like, it's tr I feel like, I guess, professional development towards staff not to learn about black history, but to learn how to respond to children or to understand maybe children's actions or reasons or um, what's the re restorative practices, I think would be like the word where it's like, hey, you don't just need to write kids up, maybe understand the root of what's going on, more of like a counseling feel. Is, is that aspect part of the bill or you're just saying capes kind of just had that philosophy that they've been trying to put in yeah we've we've um for years we're we've transitioned our discipline and safety program to restorative practices okay. that's what we use um we've teachers have had professional development in the catchphrase for it is trauma-informed care Okay. <laughs> but, you know, knowing where, you know, knowing that kids are coming to you with things that, that um, you've never experienced. That's the ACEs yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so then, go oh, no, go, oh, I was going to say, go ahead. Cause I feel like I should be politer. You're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, so then to, for the house bill 198 though, as far as the curriculum aspect, does the district still need to try to figure out what that looks like as far as being taught or is it already known, Hey, because we have this class or because we have this unit or, or we're covered. Okay. So what, what we're doing right now, um, 
and we were doing this before this bill was even on the floor, is we are looking at, you would call it a curriculum audit. So we're taking a look at our curriculum to see if there's any biases in place or, you know, if we really are only looking at things from one point of view or if we are, in fact, um, allowing students to hear about more than just white Anglo-Saxon Americans, basically. Uh, so we're our, that's, that's step one is to look at your curriculum and see what it says. You don't run out and buy a whole brand new curriculum. Now, there might be districts that need to do that I, if they're still teaching something from the, you know, who knows when, the 60s <laughs> or the 50s, I don't know. But, um, you know, we've been sensitive. To, you know, I, I retired in 2010. We were providing professional development and auditing curriculum for biases and, and, and trying to, you know, be delicate in those issues. And, you know, before 2000, hmm. before 2000, um, so it's not something brand new to us to have to look at that. Gotcha. But I think we owe it to ourselves to look at it. We have strong relationships with the minority community, minority communities in our district. And, you know, if, if they tell us something's wrong or they want to know what we're doing for this, that, or the other thing, it's our responsibility to respond to that. And if we do have gaps or insufficiencies, is it, um, we have to look at, is it systemic or is it an individual we need to deal with? Or is it an administrator in this building that we right. have to deal with? We so, have to take a look at the whole picture. So like systemic would be, we read this book that the system has approved, that is part of the curriculum that's not good. Individual would be, hey, this one teacher in this one classroom goes on about this stuff. Or then when you're saying building-wide, this leadership in the building emphasizes this particular point or they say this must be taught. Right. Okay. I just wanted to... Right. Um, okay. Because we look at our discipline data the same way. Gotcha. You know, when... You oh, know, yeah, that's a good point. You could probably figure out, oh, man, this one teacher just writes up 20 kids all the time. Maybe we need to... <laughs> Help them understand how to right. look, how to de-escalate a little bit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Let's learn how to breathe. So then, do you, based on the bill passing and Cape having done all that, do you anticipate like intent or intense? Probably the wrong word, but like curriculum changes based around the bill, or do you think Cape's already meeting whatever the regulations are within the bill? Well, I think so. We already uh, we already do. Um, we have a cycle where we review curriculum on a regular basis. So every so many years, curriculum comes around for a particular subject area, and it overlaps. Um, we're we're coming up on social studies and science anyway. Okay. So if we need to supplement it, um, you know, or take a closer look at what we're teaching, you know, the I I don't have the knowledge right now of exactly like for example what textbooks we're using gotcha. i know what i used when i taught and i know what i had to bring in to round it out you know when i taught american history or when i taught 
you know, science class and when we've talked about scientists and, you know, developments in those areas that I would do the research and bring stuff in. We have a lot of teachers that are doing that. And it's easier for experienced teachers to do that. Mm-hmm. It's your brand new people who take the book and follow the book because they're brand new and they don't have the background. Those are the people that usually need the most support from mentor teachers and from the district in terms of, you know, how do I do this? How do I bring this in? If I'm just learning how to manage a classroom and, yeah, and, and, exactly. yeah, and function in life. <laughs> um, and I promise this is not a gotcha question. I just didn't know if you wanted to address it at all. And if you don't feel free not to, Anybody who looks at House Bill 198 and replies with the term of like white guilt or like all lives matter kind of a thing, if we're talking about triggers, we shouldn't put down, we shouldn't just like blame white Anglo-Saxons. Do you have anything, any kind of response to that that you want to get into or nah, move on, Sean? (laughs) It's a really touchy topic. So for me personally, when I try to explain to people the point that I think minorities or African-Americans are trying to make us see as related to implicit bias would be things like, you know, there's never been a time in my life where I have walked down a sidewalk downtown and had somebody clutch their purse and run to the other side of the street because of the color of my skin. There's never been a time where I didn't, that I had a worry when I got pulled over by a trooper. I never even thought of the fact that I was leaning right over to my glove compartment and getting out my registration and my insurance card. And nobody ever freaked out about that. Now I have three biracial grandchildren. I'm going to have to have a conversation, I think, unless things change, (laughs) you know, by the time my grandson, you know, gets older and it's a conversation I don't want to have to have. I wish I didn't have to have, um, you know, I have heated conversations with people that I think they just don't understand what implicit bias is. They're not open to hearing it because they're hearing the old stuff, not the new stuff. And there's so much emotion tied up in it yeah. that they're looking at it in black and white, not all the little gray. I, you know, I experienced what it was like to be a woman in a man's field, but I still, but when I gave a directive to someone who didn't want to listen, because I was hired by the guy behind me or whoever, you know, I, I did end up getting support. So I was able to make headway and gain respect and, you know, that kind of stuff. I've never been in a situation where everybody liked me until I became their boss. And the reason they didn't like me was because of the color of my skin. They liked me just fine when I was equal. But I've seen that. I have seen that personally occur to people that I respect and, and know what they're capable of intellectually and, 
you know, in leadership positions and what they, because I know what I had to do sometimes to get people to trust me or to develop a rapport or understand that, you know, Hey, my leadership style is not directive or punitive, but could you please listen? You know, <laughs> please like, don't fall God. asleep when I'm talking just cause I'm a woman and you don't want to listen to me. Oh, <laughs> <You know>? wow. <laughs> it, it's the, when you were talking about the implicit bias, the thing that helped me to understand. So I enjoy going for jogs and I'll jog down like route five. And I want to say, um, by Harbison route five, route nine intersection, the cemetery, the chicken plant and all that. Yep. I yep. want to say it might've been five years ago. There was a possible abduction of a female jogger and I like a van pulled over, tried to grab a woman to get in a van. Wow. And I remember just speaking to other people, other females, and they were like, I don't want to jog anymore. And it was, you know, whatever weeks later or months later, like I remember hearing about that and not one time did it ever cross my mind. And I'm 5'10", 170. I'm not like a martial arts guy. I don't know what would happen if I got in a fight. I don't think I'm going to dominate anybody. But I never feared, and I think I've been jogging probably down that road for about 10 years at this point. Never once have I left and jogged down the shoulder of Route 5 and been like, oh my gosh, I could get abducted. And it blew my mind that females had to be concerned about, like bringing mace on a jog, not because you're worried about a dog or a bear coming at you, because you're worried about a car pulling you over. And I try to take that mentality to understand when I, my, I, my black friends are like, I'm like, dude, why didn't you start a college fund for your kid? And they'll be like, Oh, Grady, I didn't think I was going to live to 25 to see my kid to elementary school, let alone college. So why would I have? And like, right. you hear that stuff and it, it's so hard to understand, but that doesn't mean just cause you don't understand. It doesn't mean it's not there. And doesn't mean things need to be done to try to listen and gain an understanding for it. Um, well, and and that's what I say about not understanding other cultures because we always see things through our own experiences right. and our own background. So you know, if if like somebody who we consider a bad person, well, maybe their whole entire life that's all they've ever known. They don't think what they're doing is bad. <laughs> Because it's what they've done their whole life. You know, it's something as simple. I, I, I This is one of the first things I learned when I started teaching was, you know, my, par my parents used to say to me when I was in trouble, my mom would say, you look at me when I'm talking to you. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, there are cultures out there. If I said to this kid while I'm yelling at him or what, giving him the what for, you know, you look at me when I'm talking to you. And he's been trained that looking at an adult when they are upset with you is the most disrespectful thing you can do, I've right there put this kid in a situation where he's going to have to do something contrary to what he's been brought up to do. And, you know, there are adults out there who that would send them through the roof. Yeah. You look at me when I talk to you and the kid won't look at you because he's shamed. And the next thing you know, it escalates into some bizarre situation that should never have occurred over a cultural, a small cultural difference that a person, an adult, had no idea existed. That's being culturally responsive, understanding those kind of things. Well, because people, when you look at implicit bias or systematic racism, and I 
uh, yeah, I get those are two different things. But systems are made up of people. And if people can just understand other people, the system then becomes more understanding by default. And I, I, I feel like that would be part of the training. And I guess that's not part of House Bill 198, although I do believe there's a belief that people feel that is House Bill 198's purpose is to like eradicate this or to brainwash or, or any sort of buzzwords to go along with it. But it seems like the systems, it, it's more just about the people, not so much the system, like just gain an understanding. So when things are happening with children, we're in the business of children. When things are happening right. with children, understand why children can act in certain ways. We're trying to give you perspectives as leaders and adults in a classroom so that you still have a relationship with the child. So if the child on the Tuesday wants to come to class and learn and doesn't feel like I can't learn this person hates me or this person doesn't get me. Right. And right. I, I mean, you know, I had a, 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 a kid that wouldn't eat lunch. He'd stuff it. He'd sneak his whole lunch into his book bag and not eat lunch. And he was getting in trouble for it in the cafeteria. And then he'd come back to class afterwards, all upset because he was upset, uh, you know, because he'd gotten yelled at. So like, what's going on? Nobody bothered to find out why the kid was stuffing his lunch in his lunchbox. It was because, because I bothered to find out, it was because he had younger siblings at home and they had no milk for dinner. And if he didn't bring his lunch home, his little brother wasn't getting fed. So, gee, you think the kid could get an education if he was starving all the time while he's trying to be responsible for feeding the little brother? Yeah, no. So what do you do? You feed him. You make sure he has food, and you let him take the food home for his brother. Yeah. You know, then, gee, then you can educate the child. But you have to understand those things. And, and the word that irks me the most that used to be used all the time, and I still hear it, is we need to teach tolerance. No, we don't need to teach tolerance. We need to teach acceptance. Hmm. Acceptance. It doesn't mean that I agree or feel the same way, but I accept that you are who you are, that this is your lifestyle or this is your culture or this is what, it might not be who I am. And I'm not just simply tolerating you. I'm accepting you. <laughs> That's a good, it, it, not to get all woo woo, but that just seems more loving. And you would hope a school would feel loving. <laughs> I, I like, would hope so. Like I mean, most, we're in the business of kids. Yeah, most Don't. children respond better. And most children will actually go through, accept discipline and correction when they feel loved. It's why most kids who feel loved by their parents, like, do the stuff the parents say. Because they're like, all right, this sucks, but mom, dad loves me. Like, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since we kind of got into the, the race stuff, um, I'm curious about closing achievement gaps. How do you have goals? How focused in are you with that? Do you have any specifics that you'd like to see done or are being done to close achievement gaps within Cape? So, um, so the new word for achievement gap is opportunity gap. I apologize. So that's, <laughs> well, I just learned that myself. So I thought I'd pass it on, but, um, so, since I've been on the board, again, 
take this year out of the mix a little bit because we had no state testing last year to look at the data for this year. But, you know, as as a former employee of the district and then, you know, now as a, as a school board member, we we look at the data every year and we look at it in the various cells in terms of, you know, test scores and how kids do in reading, how they do in math, how they do in some grades, they do social studies, things like that. And we, we constantly review that data. The board sees the data, but each individual building has a school improvement team and they dissect that data and then they have to put a plan together on how they're going to address where the weaknesses are in the test scores as a whole. So let's say you have a third grade class, they exceed the standards, you know, in, in all areas. And then they're in, in third grade, then in fifth grade, that's a, close to the same cohort because it's not necessarily apples yeah. for apples. It's changed. But now all those kids did great in third grade, but now we hit fifth grade and what happened? You know, we're, we're kind of, we're not doing so well now. So what changed? Is it the instruction in fourth grade that, that is lacking? Is it the instruction in fifth grade that's lacking? What are, what are we doing? What do we need to change? So there's a very detailed approach to looking at the test data. And then the teams, the school improvement teams get together and come up with plans on how to address it. For and they address it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but for clarity's sake, when you had mentioned cells, just like, is there a definition or are, when you say so, third to fifth grade, it drops, are you looking at all the kids in third to fifth grade or are there specific groups with the opportunity gaps that get targeted? Okay. So, so when you look at the chart that shows the data, then we drill down into the data and pull out how did the African-American students do? How did, how did the, if, you know, whatever, whatever um, ethnicity that okay. we have, you know, whatever the demographic is, okay. how did the low SES, the low socioeconomic so, kids do? Okay. How did yeah. the girls do versus the boys? I mean, we look at it in every different way. Gotcha. And the, the test information, the tests tell us exactly what skills have been scored. Mm -hmm. So where are the gaps? Is it in, um, you know, third grade division or is it math in general you know gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and then the improvement plans are developed and evaluated on a regular basis um principals are responsible for you know making sure that data is looked at with their teams their teams come up with plans they implement the plans they have to evaluate whether it's working periodically throughout the year um, we've had great success with the process with the process um, and we've seen great growth in in closing the opportunity gap or the achievement gap um, we still have work to do but we've exceeded state standards in almost all areas we have several more than several blue ribbon schools the high school was recognized statewide as one of two one of three high schools um, that is narrowing the gap is that how you earn the blue ribbon banner by closing the opportunity gap? That's what earns the banner of blue ribbon. It's um, a combination, and okay. it's um, and then it's it's an they look at the data overall to see if you know 
if you average all the data together, aggregate the data together, you know, is, um, are you meeting or are you exceeding state standards? Gotcha. Based on like so that end of the year state test that everybody gets or the SATs for the high school. Right. right. Okay. Right. So then you right. see it and feel free to tell me if I'm incorrect. So you see it more like that building level decision-making flexibility to target because the gap can change at any moment. You see that as being the more effective tool to close, trusting the people who are there versus some sort of board policy that would be like typically like top down if you were visualizing it. Like, it, like, is there some decree the board can do like their, their magic wand <laughs> to close the opportunity gap? <laughs> well, no, we can demand that they do it, <laughs> but it, I mean, there has to, there has to be a buy-in. So, I mean, it, you know, so the buy-in has to be district-wide. It has to be something that the superintendent supports and directs. And then the building level, the building administrators can't roll their eyes and say to their staff, oh, well, we're doing this because the superintendent wants us to. They have to, you know, it has to be a district initiative. It has to be what CAPE is all about, doing what's best for kids. Gotcha. And the buy-in is, you know, and then there's professional development, there's help, there's resources. You know, we bring people in, there's book studies, there's data studies. So that because, you know, what, what, where the weakness may be or the difficulty may be in Milton might be completely different than where the test scores fell or where the gaps were in Rehoboth. Makes sense. So you have to have that autonomy at the building level to provide what your kids need that's what we're always saying to the state that's why we don't like we we want to keep as much local control as possible when the state first came out with legis with some draft bills to provide cares act or some opportunity funding for mental health services the first draft of the bill was well, this is how it's going to work and you're going to hire psychologists and you're going to hire this and you're going to do this to address the mental health needs in your school. Well, the mental health needs in Cape Lopen may be completely different than what the mental health needs are in Seaford. Wilmington. Why would I, you know, <laughs> or Wilmington, yeah. And why would I want to have to do the exact same thing as them yeah. if it's not going to work for me? So, you know, local control, you have to allow you know, for, to, to meet the needs of those kids that you have at that time and where their weaknesses are. Now, what would you say to, if we focus on the opportunity gap, our attention goes to learners who need more assistance. So our learners who are proficient get less attention and aren't challenged. That's a, that's a tough one. Well, but those those kids are also in, um, well, they should be doing really well on state testing. <laughs> you would um, think, but, so that you would, would be my point, right? So like the intervention, <laughs> if you're drilling into the data, you notice these, these kids need assistance or remediation or extra learning in this subject. So that takes time and attention. But then I, I have heard some parents, the fear is the focus is on bringing the lower scores up not taking your upper scores and continuing to raise them. I guess maybe well, that's a better way to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so I see where you're going. So 
so what we've done as a district is increase um, opportunities for kids to participate in accelerated programs. So at the okay. elementary school, it's called the CAP program. So, and, and you know, at, at the high school we have, we're, we're making sure that we are providing resources and support so that there's equal access to AP classes, academic challenge classes, honors classes. Um, you know, there's there's reading lists and extra support or extra assignments for kids who we want to develop further. So in terms of state testing at the secondary, you know, at the high school level, they're using SATs. And SATs, they're using them for everybody, including non-college bound kids. That's and tough. it's not that's not a that's not a Cape thing. That's a state thing. So it's mandatory that all the kids take the SAT. That is considered their state testing. Can a I child swear. opt out of SATs? Not no. I mean they can if they're absent gotcha gotcha i didn't know if it was like an official form or well what happens is they still get they get still get counted in the mix it's the same thing with old state testing with them when they had they called it the dstp Uh um because cape was one of the districts that tested all kids and didn't exempt all the special ed kids while other districts were making sure that that's why the rules changed around state testing really in the first place is because districts were opting not to test their special education students in DSTP. So, Hey, if you don't put any, any um, average or below average kids in your test data, you boy, you, you know, your test data looks really great. Yeah. I had no idea that that was actually like an, option what and i'm just thinking as as like a a building person i would want students to take it so i could see the areas of needed improvement and and that's what they do at the building level they drill down into and do improvement plans for individual kids as well so in, in essence with this new smarter balanced testing which i don't have work experience with but there are it's it's like an iep it's a student improvement plan for individual kids who do poorly on state testing. Gotcha. So then CAPE's kind of figured out, hey, I guess the resources aren't just going towards raising the less proficient kids to standard. There are resources and opportunities to continue to challenge kids who are already proficient. It's not like they're just sitting in the corner doing a worksheet while (laughs) the other kids are getting attention, I guess would be the most basic analogy to throw that'd be a basic way to put it yeah and if that is happening i'm hoping somebody's picking up the phone and calling me you know (laughs) or calling their principal or talking to the classroom teacher first i mean there's your first line right there Yeah, right you would hope you You know Um, yeah well so dr hanwell and you've given me two hours and you've kept the energy up i'm super i'm I'm amazed (laughs) sitting by the beach hanging out I am. It's right in front of me. I'm at Lewis Beach. It's right out there. I can yeah. see the little light on the light off the lighthouse, and I saw the last ferry go across. <laughs> so, <laughs> the elections on the 11th. Is there something we haven't covered? And again, it, I'll, I'll I'll have this stuff timestamped so people, if they're looking for specific topics, will be able to jump here. 
Is there something else you wanted to express? Do you want to summarize? Do you want like a closing statement or you just want to go to bed? <laughs> I'm close. Yeah, I'm close. <laughs> or, 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 I, or I want to have a, whatever that is you're drinking there. <laughs> no, no. Little Cabernet. Little Cabernet. Yeah, a, little, a little cab. Because <laughs> my mom's home. She's had her happy hour. <laughs> um, no, I, I would just like to say that, you know, this is an important election. Um, I think I'm, I'm sad that it's been politicized in some way, yeah. uh, because, you know, we've made it very clear over the years that we do not want school board elections to become political because my job is to take whatever kids walk through that door as a school board member. It doesn't matter, you know, where that child came from, how much money's in their pocket, what color they are. None of that matters. Every kid that walks through those doors should feel safe, be ready to learn, or have the resources to be ready to learn, and have high-quality instruction based on whatever it is, you know, whatever resources they need. If it's special support for special education, if it's academic challenge, if whatever it is in between. And to me, that's not political. That's the right thing to do. And um, this election is very important because, you know, I, I, that's what I see happening across the country is school board elections becoming politicized. Um, people have made comments about me. They don't even know me and they're making assumptions there. I have no political postings on my Facebook or any of my social media. I never have put that out there because I'm a school board member and it's important mm. to do the right thing for kids. So. People need to get out there and vote. They can't just assume that the best man's going to win. They got to get out there and help the best person win. So I hope to see everybody out there on Tuesday at the polls. I, I was amazed. I went through some of the numbers and um, like Cape, Cape polls, it, like is it Christiana or Apoquitamic that has 10,000 students? A district that has twice as many students as us in Wilmington has less votes during school board elections like CR had 900 votes total in the last election I think Cape has been over 2,000 several times yeah. like people go out yeah. and vote around Cape they care because they want they, they want a good school district at if bare minimum it does nothing else but make your kids smarter and raise your property value <laughs> right good schools yep great communities yeah. and uh and we are fortunate but I think this year's turnout is going to be even higher and I, I don't want people to sit back and think, oh, well, it'll be okay. You know, yeah. the right person will win. They need to get out there and cast a vote. Because there have been elections where they've been within 20, 30. I, I didn't get to see the closest one. I was scanning through. And I want to say it might have been 2016. There, there were a couple that were only 40 votes away, 30 votes away. And if you think of three different poll buildings, that's basically 10 people in each town. That right. Make, that make a difference. Right. It, I not, mean, we, no, yes, it's, I, it's yes. not like the general election <laughs> where you're like, Oh, what I'm a vote for the president, but the state always goes blue. So there's no point in my vote in any way. Like school boards are not like that at all. It's, no. it's just the totality. No, but you know, the, the, the groups that want to politicize the election, they don't even know what my political beliefs are. They're just assuming 
things because I'm an educator and I'm already on the school board. And it's a shame. It, I think it's a shame. So I, I, I want to see people get out and vote. People that know me know what I'm about. And, you know, but but they can't make assumptions. They need to be out there and so pick a candidate. Timestamp wise, you've you've no doubt picked Dr. Hanwell. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm so sorry. I was trying to emphasize what you're about is you're about sitting in a car for over two hours at this point to let people get to know you and all like in a wide range. And again, within two minutes, it's clear you have some serious institutional knowledge. It doesn't mean you're part of some sort of biased system. It seems like you're a great resource of how to enact change within that system if change needs to occur. Because you you know stuff, and not everybody knows stuff within a system. And that, that that's, to me, very valuable, and it was super impressive. Um, Dr. Hanwell, it's so great to get to know you. It's so great having you on. I, um, I just enjoyed kind of geeking out with you for a little bit there. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> We'll have to do it again sometime. No doubt. <laughs> less less pressure. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your night. Hopefully you, um, you can get a good night's sleep. Well, it's a Friday night. It's not time. It's not time. On the subject I like most. Thanks to Janice Hanwell for coming on the Getting to Know You pod, giving so much of her time and for be- being willing to conversate but what matters to her. Um, for the record, the Getting to Know You pod does not have a political affiliation. I just really like getting to know people and really enjoy having an excuse to get to know people running for office, especially state of Delaware, and in such a small circle like school boards or Sussex County members or Sussex County Council members. It's just really nice, and I thank everyone who's come on for willing to give in several hours to just talk about things they're passionate about. I think it really gives listeners, especially in Delaware in this case, Cape and Logan School District, an opportunity to get to know people who will be making decisions for them for the next five years. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Right now, you're done listening. You're looking for a friend. Go to social media, search Andre Psyche, and give him a follow or a friending just for the fuck of it. And if you have not already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The word of the pod. The word of the pod is vote. Vote is the word of the pod. Post that word on any of our social media or tag the Getting to Know You Pod when you use it on yours. And you'll get a shout out on our very next podcast. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You Pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform can also go to our Patreon to support the Getting to Know You pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. How does it happen? It all starts with a message. Rock the vote, y'all.